What is this one here? Ah, uh, that's philosophy. Is that a sport? See, throughout history, there have been certain men and women who've tried to find a solution to the mysteries of existence. Great. And we call these guys philosophers. Oh. And that's what we're talking about. Right! Oh, that sounds wonderful. Would you like to talk about the meaning of life, darling? Sure. Why not? You have found the Thinking Mind Podcast. Welcome back to the Thinking Mind Podcast. My name's Alex. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. And today we're going to be discussing practical philosophy for hard times. Most people consider philosophy to be a really abstract academic pursuit that's quite detached from the day-to-day reality of people's lives, and they think it's supposed to be that way. And even the adjective philosophical is sometimes used to describe something that's not considered at all pragmatic or practical. It's considered a bit derogatory to call something philosophical sometimes. Philosophy, though, contains the distillation of some of the best ideas from some of the wisest people in history. I like to think of philosophy as the operating system underlying whatever you're doing, whether you're aware of it or not. Any organized way of doing something does have an underlying philosophy, whether you came up with it or you inherited it from someone else. To name a few examples, there's a philosophy underlying science, there's a philosophy underlying capitalism, there's a philosophy underlying different kinds of psychotherapy like psychoanalysis. You have your own personal philosophy, again, whether you're aware of it or not, about how to get through life, navigate work, navigate relationships, etc. Now, when everything is going well and life seems easy and success comes easy, there's probably not a lot of motivation to examine your underlying life philosophies. But as anyone who has been alive for any length of time knows, there's going to be hard times eventually when our existing ways of thinking about the world begin to fail us and bad things start to happen. At this point, it can be helpful to start to become aware of what your personal philosophy might be. This happens in therapy a lot. And start to cultivate new ways of thinking about life or problems that you're facing. And when you're engaging in this kind of pursuit, you actually are in the position where you get to borrow ideas from some of the wisest people in history. So in this podcast, we're going to be looking at philosophical ideas from different schools of thought from all around the world and apply them to practical everyday problems that people face. So firstly, we're going to discuss Stoicism and the Stoic dichotomy of control. Stoicism is becoming increasingly popular in mainstream culture, popularized by writers like Ryan Holiday. In the Stoic dichotomy of control, what Stoicism teaches us is to be very careful in considering what we can and cannot control, and then to put our energy and focus and our emotions onto what we can control, and to avoid doing that on what we can't. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, Some things are within our power, while others are not. Within our power are opinion, motivation, desire, aversion, and, in a word, whatever is of our own doing. Not within our power are our body, our property, reputation, office, and, in a word, whatever is not of our own doing. So what Epictetus is saying is that in any given situation, there's going to be a number of factors that a person can and can't control. 
And one problem is that we often confuse the two. And this results in a huge waste of time and energy because you're trying to control the things you can't, meaning you're in resistance to things you can't control. And it also means you're not taking action on things over which you do have control. And that's a very potent recipe for unhappiness. One of the things that predisposes us most to unhappiness is the feeling that we're in a bad situation we can't get out of and that we're using our energy fruitlessly. The sentiment is echoed in the serenity prayer. And the serenity prayer goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And it's hard to know exactly where this came from, but seems to have started appearing in church groups around the 1930s and then became very popular in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's roughly the same idea that Epictetus was talking about. Let's take alcohol as an example. If you have a drinking problem and you're trying to stop, there are a number of things you can't control. You can't control necessarily that you have a compulsion to drink. You can't control that once you start drinking, you find it very difficult to stop. You can't control what your friends do. And one of the biggest problems that alcoholics often have is that they have friends who are also alcoholics. And so it can be really difficult to extricate yourself from that group. You can't control how easily available alcohol is in society. You can't control that sometimes you get stressed or angry or emotionally dysregulated in some way. But what can you control? You can control whether or not you have alcohol in your house. You can control who your friends are, who you choose to associate with, and whether or not you have friends that support you in stopping drinking or not. You can control how often you're in triggering situations like bars or pubs. You have control about how you respond to stressful situations, whether you choose alcohol to respond to stress or something more sustainable. And you can control how you respond to relapse. Relapse is obviously very common when people are trying to stop something like drinking. Once you relapse, you don't have control over what happened, but again, you have control over what you do about that relapse. So you can decide, for example, that the relapse is the inspiration for you to keep going rather than a confirmation that you're bound to fail. By having a high degree of acceptance, you can now free up your energies and your focus and your brain power and channel it towards what you can control. And that will make the path to stopping drinking much easier instead of making it more difficult. It's worth reflecting sometimes how much we get in our own way in this regard. And sometimes we choose the more difficult path because on some level, we're not entirely motivated to accomplish the thing that we say we want to accomplish. But when you're applying this stoic dichotomy of control, you really can't hide. It really puts things into sharp relief. And that's one of the reasons it can be so helpful. Next, we're going to discuss Buddhism, including the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path which is kind of Buddhism 101. So the first noble truth of Buddhism is you don't talk about Buddhism. I'm just kidding. The first noble truth of Buddhism is that life is suffering. The second truth is that attachment is the root of our suffering. The third is that letting go of attachments is the end of suffering. And then the fourth noble truth lays out what's known as the eightfold path to letting go of attachments. And the Eightfold Path includes right view, right resolve, right mindfulness, right action, right meditative awareness, 
right speech, right livelihoods, and right effort. So essentially, the Four Noble Truths are telling us that suffering is kind of inevitable in life, and that we go through these ups and downs. And then it tells us that the suffering is a result of desire, and that could be desire for something we want to happen, or our desire for something we don't want to not happen. And because we're attached, we're attached to these desires or these aversions, that's what's ultimately perpetuating most of our mental suffering. And then Buddhism tells us we have to become detached from these mental processes and then lays out the Eightfold Path I mentioned to accomplish that. When you look at the Eightfold Path, it really revolves around our behavior, what we do, how we speak, how we interact with others, but also, importantly, our state of mind, our level of awareness and concentration, and our ability to see reality for how it is. Buddhism tells us the more identified we are with our thoughts, the more unhappy we're destined to be because our thoughts are spontaneous, they're, they're not of our own making, and our thoughts are constantly revolving around these desires which we mentioned. So how can we apply these ideas to everyday life? When you're pursuing different goals in life, normally you're engaging in some kind of challenging process with a view to get a result. For example, you're studying and applying for jobs in order to become employed, or you're dating in order to get into a relationship, or you're training in order to win a competition. Buddhism tells us that our attachment to getting that desired outcome, whatever it is, or to avoid what's perceived as a bad outcome is going to be causing us all this frustration and unhappiness. One of the most insightful points that Buddhism teaches us is that this unhappiness largely only exists within our minds. Very much when we're dissociated from the present, from the reality around us, and when we're essentially living in a fantasy about some imagined future or some interpretation of our past. This is, in essence, what we call in psychology, catastrophization. So that's when, for example, you have a bad job interview and you think, I'm never going to get a job, I'm always going to be unemployed, I'm going to lose my savings, I'm going to end up homeless and alone. It's a process of getting caught up in that mental loop. And the more you get caught up in that mental loop, the more you become detached from reality. So by following the Eightfold Path, and this includes very practical exercises like meditation, we stop living so much in our thoughts and we stop identifying so much with our thoughts. We focus more on what's actually happening around us. And not only does that make us more peaceful, it actually makes us more able to respond to what's happening around us so we can often get a better result. So if, for example, you want to get into a relationship, which is of course a very reasonable thing to want and you're on a date with someone and normally you'd be having thoughts like how am I coming across? Do I look okay? Is the person good enough for me? How do I look in this lighting? Am I good enough for this person? The ideas we've discussed so far would tell us that these thoughts are a result of being excessively attached to our desired outcome and that we should detach from these thoughts. Realize that these thoughts are the barriers between us and the greater sense of peace. In the Eightfold Path that we talked about, this would be having a right view, a right mindfulness, a right meditative awareness. Instead, focus on the present. So in this situation, focus on the date itself, focus on the other person, focus on getting to know them, focus on having a good time, focus on what you can learn on the date, about dating, about 
people of the opposite sex about yourself. In the Eightfold Path, this would be right action, right effort, right resolve. And then you let the result of the date be whatever it's going to be. And you could have a second date, so you may never see that person again. Ironically, as we mentioned before, even though doing this means focusing less on the desired result, approaching life in this way means you actually get the best chance of getting the result you want anyway because you're more reality-oriented. This approach also helps you develop a wider perspective and become more equanimous with life's ups and downs which are inevitable because sometimes we can do everything right and still not get the results that we want because of misfortune or any number of other factors. If you want to get started with a Buddhist approach, try a simple five-minute mindfulness meditation. We have a couple of meditations on the podcast, which I'll link in the description, or you can find them very easily online on YouTube. And when you're doing the mindfulness meditation, the main thing to notice is how easily and spontaneously different thoughts and emotions arise in your mind, and how easily you can get carried away by them, how easily they take you away from the present and into this fantasy world that only exists in your mind. Next, we're going to discuss deontology. Deontology is a school of philosophy associated with Immanuel Kant, among others. Deontology asserts that there really are absolute rights and wrongs in this world, and that people should build their ethics and their morality on principles, that you need to build a strong moral architecture in the long term, such that when you're in an acute situation, you can pull from your moral system to know how to act. So the main contrast to a deontological approach is a consequentialist approach. Consequentialists would believe that the rightness or wrongness of a particular action is down to its consequences. And deontology says the opposite, there's an inherent rightness or wrongness to a particular course of action. On the surface, a deontological approach can seem excessively rule-based and a bit tyrannical and a bit moralistic. But I think what people don't understand about having a robust moral system is that it's very useful and it's very pragmatic. Having a moral system can be so effective in life because it's a filter. In any given situation in life, we're presented with an infinite number of possible options. Having a strong morality is essentially having a filter that allows you to boil down an infinite number of options to just a few. To take the consequentialist view where you judge each action on its consequences really requires you to know or have a very good idea of what the consequences of your actions are likely to be. And I don't think people appreciate how difficult this is. So I think in general, the more uncertain the outcome of your particular situation and the more variables that exist within your situation, the more you should be a deontologist. And you can also make the argument that it would really be prudent to lean on the side of recognizing that most situations are very uncertain with a lot of variables which you can't comprehend all of. And it's actually very hubristic to think that you can accurately understand the consequences of all of your actions. And if you look at history, there's many, many examples of unintended consequences. I don't think, for example, the people who assassinated the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire knew that by doing so, they'd spark a global conflict that would kill 10 million people. And I think they knew even less that that conflict 
would lead to a further conflict 20 years later that would kill 100 million people. And I think everyone can look at their own personal lives and understand that many bad things have resulted from unintended consequences, from things that they never really saw coming, but were on some level a consequence of their actions. Sound moral principles can include the basics like telling the truth, treating others like you would want to be treated, having goodwill towards others. Can't actually believe that having goodwill towards others was actually the only unassailable good that existed in life. So looking at an everyday example, let's take something like lying. You might decide to lie to protect someone you love. Deontology would argue that this is an immoral act regardless of the consequences because lying is inherently immoral because it has an innate destructiveness. With regards to lying, Kant said, Hence a lie defined merely as an intentional, untruthful declaration to another man does not require the additional condition that it must do harm to another, as jurists require in their definition. For a lie always harms another. If not some other human being, then it nevertheless does harm to humanity in general, inasmuch as it vitiates the very source of right. All practical principles of right must contain rigorous truth. This is because such exceptions would destroy the universality on account of which they bear the name of principles. And of course, as we all know with something like lying, we may think by lying we're making things easier on ourselves and on other people. Often this is only true in the short term, but in the long term lying can be incredibly destructive. Because we don't take into account how the truth can come out in other ways, how hurt people are when they're deceived, how being seen as deceptive can be much worse than whatever was being concealed by the deception in the first place. So when life throws you a complicated situation with dilemmas or many different possible courses of action, deontology can make our lives a lot easier by just compelling us to ask, what is the right thing to do? And the last idea we're going to discuss today is amor fati, which is an existential idea often associated with Friedrich Nietzsche. Amor fati is a Latin phrase that translates to love of faith or love of one's faith. Amor fati represents a profound and affirmative attitude towards life, where you don't just accept but embrace your entire life's journey, and that can of course include events, choices, circumstances, whether you would initially perceive them as positive or negative, Amor Fati encourages you to push that all aside and to embrace life holistically. One of the things that Nietzsche is most known for is his idea of eternal recurrence, which was kind of a thought experiment which suggests that the universe is a constant cycle where everything that has happened will happen again infinitely. In the context of this thought experiment of eternal recurrence, Amor Fati challenges us to imagine that our life will repeat exactly as it is, over and over again, with all of its joys and sorrows. And Nietzsche tells us, if we can affirm everything that happens, love every aspect of our existence, then we've truly embraced Amor Fati. And how does this help us? By encouraging us to see the full richness of life and all of its complexity, Rather than wasting a lot of time and energy wishing for things to be different or feeling full of regret, we can now see the full meaning and value in all of our experiences. And there's a lot of meaning and value to have in experiences, even if they're challenging or painful. 
This idea can help us overcome resentments. Nietzsche believed that resenting one's past or current circumstances is a profound source of unhappiness and bitterness. Overcoming this resentment, reframing adversity as an opportunity for learning and growth, self-discovery, can really help us to realize our potential. Amor Fati also gives us some freedom and some responsibility. It implies that we all have a sense of personal responsibility for how we interpret what's happened to us and gives us a sense of agency in terms of how we relate to our circumstances. If you choose to love your fate instead of to resent it, then you can fully accept responsibility for all of your choices and actions thereafter, and it actually gives you more power to shape what happens to you next. Nietzsche tells us that Amor Fati is an aesthetic attitude towards life. By aesthetic he means it helps us to appreciate life as though it was a work of art. And just like a work of art, it will have light and shadow. And the beauty is found in the totality of the light and the shadow together. Lastly, Amor Fati helps to affirm us as individuals that our life is uniquely ours with all of our imperfections. And rather than spending our time craving someone else's life, we can use this idea to choose to fall in love with our own life and our own individual path, no matter how unconventional it is. There's a lot of acceptance wrapped up in Amor Fati. And just like in Buddhism, where acceptance of reality can actually help you make better decisions, Nietzsche felt that acceptance of our circumstances via Amor Fati can actually lead us to further greatness. It's important to point out that Amor Fati is not about passive resignation, which is a trap that people often fall into, but rather than a passive resignation, it's more of an active affirmation, even of the negative or the perceived negative things that happen to us. It's not about pretending that terrible things haven't happened, but it's more a general philosophy of acceptance. Amor Fati really complements what we know about human psychology in that we know often it's our relationship to something which divines our emotional response to it rather than the thing or the circumstance itself. It's a statement about the relationship we choose to have with our circumstances. Looking at a practical example about how Amor Fati can be used in everyday life, imagine two kids at school both kids really want to be good at sports, but neither are particularly athletically gifted. The first kid spends all of his time and mental energy dwelling on how unfortunate he is to not be talented in the area that he wants to be talented in. He spends all of his time comparing himself to the kids who are naturally athletically gifted, and as a result, doesn't have any mental bandwidth left over to think about how he could improve or get better or get more enjoyment out of life. Now imagine the second kid is the opposite. He applies Amor Fati and he actually uses his natural disadvantages as a fuel to get better. And getting better could look like spending time at the gym outside of school, reading about technique in different sports. Instead of negatively comparing himself to the athletically gifted kids, he observes him closely to see what are they doing that he's not doing. And imagine he gets so good at this that he surpasses the athletically gifted kids who, because they're naturally talented, have fallen into complacency. You can see in this example how 
just having a different orientation to your situation can give you a totally different outlook and a totally different set of behaviors that can actually help you excel and achieve your potential. So what are some caveats and counter arguments that are worth noting about the ideas we've discussed today? I think these ideas can really help in difficult situations and different phases of life, but they obviously really heavily revolve around our mental life. It's like our software. And good philosophical ideas aren't a substitute for taking care of our physical bodies, which you can think of as more like our hardware. You can have all the best philosophical insights in the world, but you still need to sleep, have good nutrition, have good social relationships, get your basic needs met, get exercise, spend time outside. And it's also worth noting that these ideas really need to be applied. It's not about sitting in your room and reading books. It's about learning the new ideas and then applying them in your life. Real life experience is crucial. You need to apply what you've learned, try out the insights and see what works for you and what does not. So to conclude today's episode, life, as you all know, often throws us difficult, unpredictable situations. We can often feel there are really limited options. We can feel stuck and stuckness is one of the things that makes us the most unhappy and makes us hopeless and we can be not sure what to do. Our problems, however, are a lot more universal than we think, and others in the past and present have struggled with and do struggle with many of the same issues we do. Fortunately, some of the wisest men in history have formulated amazing and innovative ways of dealing with some of life's most perennial problems. Today, I wanted to give you a few examples of how philosophy can impact your life for the better, a lot of these different ways of thinking, of course, have significant overlap and they include acceptance, clear-mindedness, approaching life with a lot of intentionality, and funneling your mental and emotional energy correctly so as not to waste it because it is, after all, finite. We discuss taking a broader perspective on our lives so that we can see the bigger picture. Hopefully, hearing about these ideas from Stoicism, Buddhism, Theontology, and Existentialism can help you a little bit with some of the problems you may be dealing with now and inspire you to learn more about these incredible thinkers and ideas. This is the Thinking Minds podcast, a podcast all about psychiatry, psychology, psychotherapy and self-development. To support the podcast, you can share it with a friend, follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen, give us a rating or if you want to support us further, you can buy us a coffee using the link in the description. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you've got any feedback, as always, do get in touch. If you enjoyed the episode, why not give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, because it really helps other people to find us. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram or Twitter, or you can drop us an email. And if you value the show more generally, why not buy us coffee just to help keep us going? Thanks so much.